Mac Power Users, episode 382, Home Automation Update. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. How are you, David? I'm great, Katie Floyd. Good to be back home. I had a, fun, a lot of fun up in San Jose last week, but now I'm paying the price, getting caught up. You could have just stayed, you know. I, I feel like I should have. Yeah. I came back to a couple big things going on, so I've been working hard. Maybe it would have been better to hide out up in the relay shack <laughs> there for another week. Well, we are glad to have you back. And we're kind of breaking the rules here. I opened up the outline, and you've got an entire section on WWDC follow-up. We don't usually have follow-up unless it's in one of our designated follow-up shows. Yeah, this is this is kind of newsy, though. I mean, there was a bunch of questions that came out of last week's show about WWDC, and we do have a we do have a follow up show in the next month or so, and and there's a bunch of questions people ask me about the beta and the stuff you can do with the beta. And by the time we record that show, there'll be two or three betas out, and Katie will probably be testing one of them too. So we're going to answer all those questions on the follow up show. But there was some more immediate stuff uh, that people were asking about that I thought well, let's just take a few minutes at the top of the show today and kind of follow up on some of those items. So we're doing news and follow up. You're just breaking rules everywhere. I know, I know, but just bear with us. This is good stuff. And starting with the fact that the whole world wants to know, Katie, because last time I was listening to the show, it sounded to me like you changed your mind like four times I did, during yeah. the last show, whether or not you're getting this new iPad or not. Did you or didn't you? I did. All right. I surprised even myself because I bet you didn't think I would go through with it, did you? I was pretty sure. I felt bad afterwards. I felt like... Oh, man, I'm pressuring her. I actually sent you a little note saying, it's okay. You don't have to get one. Just go in the store, remember? You sent me a string of text messages that was like, it's really okay. It's not that great. You don't have to do it. It's all right. Yeah. And I'm like, "What? I've already ordered it. What are you doing? You know. Well, you, you sounded really on the fence. It was sounded like it was concerning you. So, so you went ahead and you bought it. Great. Tell us about your new iPad. And the, and the commitment was when I had already gotten rid of the, my other iPad. So I've been iPadless for a couple of days now. But... Uh, so the new iPad came. I've got the 10.5 inch here. I've only had it for a couple of hours because it was supposed to be here this morning, but I guess it missed its flight and had to catch a later flight. But it finally made it. And um, I, I so I've, I've only had it for a couple of hours here. I will tell you that my initial impressions are are very positive. Um, I will say as a caveat that if you are updating from a 9.7 inch Pro, it's probably not a tremendous upgrade. But um so only really crazy people probably need to upgrade from a 9.7 inch pro to a 10.5 inch pro, but uh, it, it's a nice upgrade nonetheless. It um, a couple of things that I've noticed immediately off the bat is that the the screen is just gorgeous, and it's really hard to put a finger on exactly what I'm reacting to with the screen. But immediately when and I, I've had the 9.7 inch pro for over a year, and it's got a pretty darn good screen. But immediately when opening and pulling the iPad out and interacting with it, something about the screen just was was clearly better. And perhaps it's I'm reacting to it because it's a little brighter. Perhaps I'm reacting to it um, because of the display technology. Perhaps I'm reacting to the 120 hertz refresh rate. But uh, the screen is, to my eyes, noticeably better. Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I mean, first is all the nits. It's all about the nits, right? This thing is brighter than the prior one. You make a screen brighter, it just naturally looks better. Uh, I got to spend time with one last week, and then I've had mine a day for about a day here that I've been goofing off with it. 
And I completely agree. But I think the big difference is the screen refresh, the 120 per second screen refresh. And if you um, if you want to save money, I strongly recommend you do not go into an Apple store and go in Safari on one of these and just start scrolling to see how smoothly it, it scrolls. It, it really is a significant difference. It scrolls like butter. Yeah, there you go. Like butter. It's, <laughs> it's great. You just, and it, and it's not just in scrolling in Safari. It's just the whole interface when you tap an icon and it jumps into a folder or when you, when you scroll the screen or when you're working in your apps, everything just happens crisper and faster. Um, and so you combine that with the additional, you know, nits and the, the brighter screen, it, it really is a noticeable difference. I think like Katie said, if you have the 9.7, you really don't need to spend a thousand dollars to update it unless you're crazy like Katie and I, but, but at the same time, if you want to, you know, there's worse things you could spend money on. <laughs> and, uh, if you want to get yourself a new one, uh, you will notice it. And I think it is really nice. So it's, it's a, it's a significant difference. When I was talking to people in San Jose, they're saying this is just like the change from non-retina to retina. I disagree with that. I don't think it's as good. I mean, the change to retina screens really, um, you know, it really was, um, nice, you know, but this is, I don't think it's on that level. But it's certainly an improvement to the screen, which makes using the device overall better. Um, the other thing that I will say that you had kind of alluded to hypothetically last episode is that for me, in all the ways that were important, you know, I did not want a bigger iPad. I'm still an iPad mini fan. But in all the ways that are important, although this is a slightly larger iPad it still feels like a 9.7 inch iPad. It's a little bit taller. It's slightly ever so much wider. So your accessories, of course, aren't going to fit up on it. But um, the the weight and feel is pretty much the same as a 9.7 inch. So if you're worried about the 10.5 being bulkier or bigger or too clunky, if, if you're happy with the 9.7, I don't think that's going to be a concern at all. And that was a huge relief to me. You really can't tell a difference. It's the same weight. It's slightly bigger on the edges. It's just big enough that all of your accessories are not going to work with it. But uh, right. um, it doesn't add any weight, really. And it's it's a, it's a significant improvement. Another thing we didn't talk about is 20% more pixels. And the way they did it was they didn't compress the pixels. So you have the same number of pixels on the small one as the big one. Instead, it's just a new screen size. And it's the same pixel density, but about 20% more than you got with the 97 uh, that can make a difference. Just depends on how you use the device, but it, it's nice to see uh, more uh, little light bulbs on the screen when you turn it on. Yeah, and it it looks like um, you know I'm still running iOS 10 on this. Um, I will probably upgrade to iOS not 11 when the uh, when the when the beta public beta comes out. Everything's a little bit more spaced out. Um, it it. I like the bigger screen size because, it, you know, it didn't cost me anything really well other than several hundred dollars. But it didn't cost me anything in terms of of, of space and size and those types of things. Um, I, I think the extra screen real estate is going to come in handy with iOS 11. And we're going to talk about iOS 11 next on the list. But before we get there, uh, did you get any uh, – are you using a pencil with it? So I have a confession. You know, I bought the pencil because you urged me to because you were such a pencil fan. And I never, ever used it. Like it sat in the pencil cup on my desk for months and months and months. And every time I went to go pick it up for something, it was always dead. I never used the pencil. So finally, a couple of months ago, I just sold it. You know, I packed it up and put it on um, Amazon and, and just sold it. And, you know, now I admit that I kind of want to try the pencil again. 
Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> we'll order one on Amazon. Maybe I'll get yours back. Maybe I'll get mine back or, or find another inexpensive one. Um, I, I did order the smart keyboard because I have loved having the smart keyboard uh, with my 9.7-inch iPad Pro. And I had debated not ordering the smart keyboard. I debated, um, you know, our friends over at, um, gosh, I'm sorry, uh, can, uh, can, they make the Canopy uh, Studio Neat. Um, have the canopy, which is a, um, a a combination case and stand for uh, the the Apple keyboard that works uh, very well with the iPads. And I debated going going that route, but you know, I just I love the smart keyboard case because it's always there and it's right when you need it, and it's not an additional thing to carry around. Even though it does add a little extra bulk to the iPad, but I uh, so I decided to go with the uh, the Apple keyboard case instead, and I I bought that as well. And the keyboard case feels a lot better on this iPad. It's just a little bit wider, um, but that makes a lot of difference. I will say my one disappointment with the keyboard case is that the um, the keys are a little more spaced out now, which which is nice. I find them more comfortable to type on because you're not as cramped. But there's also a little more space between the individual keys, which I felt like they could have used some percentage of that space to make the keycaps bigger. I, I never had a problem typing on a 9.7 keyboard case. So this one feels good to me too. I don't feel like it's that noticeably different. I know it is a little spacier and a little roomier, but I think I can type on just about anything. So so long as my fingers can fit and they could fit on 9.7, they can certainly fit on the slightly wider 10.5. Um, the uh, the pen, On the pencil, uh, the, one of the things, I think we talked about this last week, is it's 240 times per second refresh rate in a pencil. Uh, I would point people to the iMore review of the new iPad where Serenity Caldwell did some like high-end video. Well, I don't know if it's high-end, but it's nice video showing the draw and refresh speed on some very uh, careful pencil drawing, and it's significantly better. I um, I used it this afternoon to review a contract, and I um, and I did note, because I use the pencil for very detailed work on kind of my lawyery stuff, as my kids would say, and I... Uh, so I was writing with the pencil on a contract, and I think actually the refresh rate makes the annotations look a little better. Does it make your handwriting any better? Well, I, I think, well, it does, and this is why. Um, they have this predictive analysis where it tries to figure out where the pencil is going. And because it's getting more refresh, it's getting more data, the, the predictive stuff is better. And I don't have to feel so deliberate. I can actually write a little faster with it, and it looks more like my handwriting as opposed to someone trying to slow down to to allow the computer to keep up. Did you buy a case or anything with your iPad? Any other accessories? Uh, no, I, I didn't, but I saw that my my friends over at Waterfield, sfbags.com, where I buy most of my cases from, have got the, um, the dash case. I, I bought the dash case for the prior one. It's like a ballistic nylon sleeve with padding on the inside and a little slot for your pencil. And it's really nice because you can put it in a briefcase or a backpack or whatever, and the, and the device is protected and then you just pull it out. And I always buy the one that's just, it's just slightly wider to accommodate the keyboard case. So with a very small footprint, I can get all my iPad related gear in, uh, in anything. And I saw that the press release that they're going to do a, a new one for the 10.5. So I'm going to buy one of those as soon as they, uh, they're available. How about you? Well, I just got the keyboard case and then I went on Amazon and there's this company, I, I think they're pronounced Makoko, 
Um, they're just a, an inexpensive, you know, case fabricator. Um, I bought a back cover from them just because it was one of the few things that was available that would work with the keyboard case. Cause Apple doesn't make a back cover anymore. Um, what, and I got an email from them this morning. So I, I had fair warning that their cutouts didn't quite align. Cause I guess they were, you know, fabbing it based on, you know, what they thought it was going to be. And then they got their actual iPads today. So they, and, and this happened to them last year too. So they emailed me and said that they're actually, you know, shipping me out another case that will fit and I'll have that next week. Um, so I, I've got the the back cover. <laughs> Playing that, with fire, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got the back cover that kind of fits right now. But, um, you know, the good news is, is, is good on them. I'm, I'm sure they're losing a bunch of money on the people who ordered early, you know, reshipping them out all new cases. Cause it was, I mean, it was like an $8 case plus, you know, I didn't pay shipping, they paid shipping. So now they're going to have to ship me a brand new case and eat the first one. So, uh, first mover cost, right? Yeah, I suppose so. So everybody has been asking, you know, it was a, a big question in the Facebook group. What model did you buy and why? I got the, um, the 256 gigabyte 10.5 space gray. And I got the cellular radio, which, you know, I don't really need the cellular radio. It's an extra hundred and something bucks. But the old one I had did not have the cellular radio. And sometimes just moving around and trying to get it to pair. I just didn't want to goof with that anymore. So I, I got the cellular model. How about you? Well, probably won't surprise you. I bought the uh, the low-end model. I, the last several years, I've actually bought lower-end iPads. And for the most part, it's been okay. I will say that my um, 32 gig got a little tight when I was traveling and trying to load it up with movies and TV shows and all. Um, so I was very happy when the, the low-end model was now 64 because that will give me plenty of room because I don't put any music or anything on them. So I got the um, the Space Gray 64 Wi-Fi. Yeah, I you know, I got the additional space. I, I just hate managing space on these devices so much. And uh, so I'd rather just not have it as an issue. And I have this pipe dream that the files app is going to be so awesome. And I may want to start downloading a bunch of files to the device. And um, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to have a lot of space. So I went ahead and, and up the storage, but, but uh, you know, I, whatever. I mean, they, they've got it at every price tier and every option, but that that's what I did. The other question I got a lot is, are you going to still be the multi-pad lifestyle? You know, are you still going to use two? Uh, I don't really know. I I can tell you that I, I shut down my big iPad yesterday as I knew this was coming. I said, okay, for the next two weeks, I'm just going to see if I can do everything on the smaller one. Uh, two two items that I can think of in, in general are when I'm working with um, fine print contracts, uh, I really like the bigger screen because it, it gets it bigger and allows me to write things in the margins. Um, and I also like it when I, because I play a lot of music, I like the sheet music on the bigger size screen. Because if you get a few feet away, it gets harder to read on the small screen. As an aside, I just saw a piano player recently playing an iPad mini. He had all the sheet music on an iPad mini. And of course, he was like 22 years old. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, I've put the big iPad away. I'm going to see how I do for a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I would like to just get by with one. I think it's a lot easier uh, than having two, but we'll see. Now, what about iOS 11? Um, I know that you were running the beta. I am not. Um, it's, you know, it's um, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, over the years, these, these iOS betas have gotten a lot more stable. In fact, let me start this conversation by saying, don't load the beta. Whatever you do, don't load the beta. Okay, so now I've given you your warning. Uh, but 
but I remember like in iOS four, if you loaded the beta, none of your apps worked. Like even like the Apple apps were, were practically broken. But now these days, uh, most apps work. I haven't had any um, crushing crashes, you know, things that just cause big problems. A good friend of ours, uh, um, I guess I can say, I don't know if he's keeping, I, I'll just keep it secret, but a good friend of us that a lot of people listen to the show know, tried to load a large image as a wallpaper, like an over, a very much oversized image, and it completely crashed the iPad. And like to the point that he had to go plug it into a Mac and re reinstall the whole operating system. So... Uh, that's a beta software stuff like that happens. Uh, battery life is terrible. It's like half of the usual battery life. Um, but multitasking is awesome. Uh, file swapping is awesome. Drag and drop is awesome. I've heard from several developer friends over the last week, uh, who are starting to say, okay, I want to get my app ready for iOS 11. What kind of stuff do you want to drag and drop into my app? And and as users, we should all be thinking about that because this is a really powerful workflow that you're going to have with iOS 11. We're going to do a lot more coverage of this when it ships. But just imagine any app on the right side of the screen and another app on the left side of the screen. It's not just about dragging and dropping words. You can drop images, calendar events, emails. I mean, the type of data sharing you can do between these applications. It's really powerful. It's the stuff we've been wanting on iPad for years. So... Uh, I'm not going to wait to load the, the beta on this new iPad as soon as we get done recording the show today. I didn't do it before the show because I didn't want to have it not working during the show. But it, it is, I can't wait to get it rolling on this fast refresh screen and just see how much more awesome it is. Uh, my phone, I'm totally thinking about it. No, you just <laughs> said that it was not stable. Don't you use your phone like to talk to I can't help to, myself, Katie. I can't help clients? myself. I am Groot. I am Groot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You need like an intervention or something. I'm, and I'm going on vacation in a month. I'm doing everything wrong, but I'm totally Don't do it until you at least get back from vacation. Oh my goodness. I'm not going to make any promises. I'm not going to make any promises. But anyway, if you have questions about the beta, if you're not a, an idiot like me and you just have some questions about it, send them in. I will take the bullet. We'll try some of this stuff out and we do the feedback show. I'll cover it a lot more. Um, a couple other quick follow-ups on the WWDC show. I receive multiple emails from listeners saying, oh, I really love this iMac Pro. Do you think I should buy it or not? Um, and my answer is almost always no. no. You know, the, um, I just don't think it's it's for most people. I, once again, as I said at the top of the show, look, if you want to go spend a big pile of money on something cool that Apple makes, I am the last person in the world to give you grief about it. But I think for what most people do, um, you know, I'm not even convinced if I were to replace this Mac, I, iMac, I would do it with the highest grade current shipping iMac. I mean, Apple has really kind of raised the ceiling on Mac performance to where even though, you know, producing podcasts and screencasts, I'm not sure I even need the most fancy iMac that they have available. So I certainly wouldn't need the iMac Pro. Uh, you know, if you're writing me and say, I'm going to make the next, you know, Star Wars movie, and I'm going to do the digital effects. Well, of course you would need something really fancy, but but you probably don't need it, but it's up to you. Um, anything else on that, Katie? No. Nope. Got a couple questions from people asking me if I made it to the spaceship campus. No, I did not. At this point, it's um, hard hat only. You know, they're still doing construction. They're still moving in. So they wouldn't let, you know, geeky bloggers in. But I'm going to be up in San Francisco in a couple months. I'm going to talk to a few of my friends at Apple. And if anybody out there listening can get me on, let me know and I'll report back. But it may be a while before we can actually get on the on the new campus. And uh, that that does it 
for the WWC follow-up. How's that? This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Text Expander lets you instantly insert snippets of text using quick search or an abbreviation. The trick to being productive with your technology is using your brain and offloading all the other parts to the computer. The less time you spend doing menial work and the more time you spend using your brain, the better your grades are, the more money you make, or the more successful you are with your business. No matter what your goal is, Text Expander is there to help you. We've all heard about text replacement applications before where you type in a few letters and it automatically fills something in for you. But Text Expander is so much more. Text Expander can automatically insert the date or time in a text snippet. Text Expander can run little bits of code that you write yourself or you download from other smart people on the internet. And even more recently, Text Expander can help run your team. Over the past several months, I've been hiring some people to help me out with support emails and some other things I'm doing. Some of those tasks I've been assigning now include the use of text expansion. Specifically, when my group sends out information, I want the text to be right. I want the links included to point to the right places and everything to be super easy. So to do this, I set up a text expander for Teams account, which you can do now. I set up my team members with their own team accounts, and now I'm sharing snippets with them. If a link changes, I can update it on my version of text expander, and then it automatically propagates down to the other team members. They don't even have to know that I changed something. Their snippet will just work with the new information. One of the nice things about implementing this system is that my helpers are not geeks. I spent about 15 minutes showing each one of them how I want Text Expander to work and how to trigger snippets, and I've had to do no further training since then. Everything just works. This has been a huge productivity boost for my team, but it also means that we're getting consistent information out and the right information out. Paying for my team to sign up for Text Expander was a no-brainer. I'm super happy with it. And you should too. If you're working with other people and you want to make sure they also get the right information out, why not set up a Text Expander team for your workplace? It's really easy to set this up. They even have a website now that shows you how to set up snippet groups and teams. I'll go ahead and link it in the show notes. But my point is that you can solve this problem today with Text Expander for Teams. Thanks, Smile, for supporting the Mac Power users. We didn't come here to talk about WWDC today, though, did we? That would be hard to tell, though, from our our show just far. (laughs) I feel good, though. Thank you for letting me exercise that. I need to get it out of my system. All right. Well, what we're here to do is talk about home automation and to check in on the status of home automation. And I have a lot to say about this subject. Um, So I'm looking forward to dig in. But I would like to start with WWDC. We're back. <laughs> I know. I know. We just ended there, didn't we? Yes, we are. But the uh, the good news for home automation people uh, is there is a lot changing in the home. And specifically, Apple made some changes at WWDC to their HomeKit specification. And um, anybody now, did you know that anybody can watch many of the WWDC videos? You don't have to have a developer account. It's great stuff. It is good stuff. So if you are interested in, uh, Apple has a couple of videos on WWDC, or uh, a couple of videos on HomeKit specifically from their WWDC session. Session 705 uh, was an interesting one. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes if you are uh, interested in it. Uh, But the reason we wanted to have the show today is because there are changes coming with the HomeKit spec at WWDC. Um, More Internet of Things devices are available than ever before. And then you and I have both made uh, some changes with our setup, and we thought it was time to kind of give an update. 
We heard from some friends that are in the software and hardware businesses that have traditionally been pretty unhappy with HomeKit because Apple has been very strict about security. And that makes it really hard to get a device through, you know, the gauntlet to get it approved as an official HomeKit device. Um, Leading up until this year, it actually required a hardware chip in the device that had the authentication and necessary security stuff. Uh, so that added cost and it added time to the whole process, which is why, frankly, we don't have as many HomeKit hardware products as as we'd like. In fact, I know for a fact a few manufacturers that tried and ultimately gave up because meeting uh, Apple's security guidelines was just too high of a bar for them. Well, it appears that that is changing. Um, Apple announced at WWDC that they are making the HomeKit platform more accessible to third parties. So this includes a couple of things. First off, they're loosening the licensing restrictions. Um, so if you want to play around with HomeKit, you don't have to have uh, MiFi uh, made for iOS or made for iPad or whatever it's called now, um, licensed to do that. You can play around with HomeKit on um, your own, you know, without having any licensing. Now, of course, if you want to bring that to market, you are going to have to get some licensing. Um, but it, it allows tinkerers to be able to to play around with things uh, using the HomeKit spec on their own. So um, if, if you want to do that, you can now do that. They are also loosening up the specification so that HomeKit compatible products no longer have to have that hardware authentication chip. I will admit that this one makes me a little nervous, um, but instead Apple says that authentication will now go through software, which means theoretically that a firmware update may, not necessarily will, but may allow existing or future products to use Apple's software-based authorization system. Um, Apple says that this will still be secure. Um, That obviously is yet to be seen. But I think the reality is, is that many HomeKit devices were also compatible with other services that didn't use this hardware authentication chip. So there were other avenues for software-related attacks anyway. And they've come a long way with software security on these Internet of Things devices. It just didn't really exist a few years ago. And now it's a bigger thing. So I'm not um, I, I'm, I'm going to be careful about this, but I'm also not cynical about it. I think that they're actually trying to do this in a way that still protects security, but makes it easier for people to get products made. Because, you know, that's if it if nobody can make a product to meet the, the chip requirement, then what's the point? Right. I mean, I know a couple of devices that you and I have in our homes either, are, you know, claim that HomeKit compatibility is coming and have claimed for a while, but, you know, just haven't managed to get products to market yet. You know, like your Canary home security system has said for over a year now that they've got a HomeKit compatible version coming, but yet that's kind of drifted off and disappeared. You know, the Belkin Wemo that I have several of these devices um, have have said that, um that, that they're coming, but, um, you know, later, it's always, always later. I can't help but wonder, number one, how do these, how do these developers who are always working already have in progress HomeKit with, with the chip authentication feel about this change, but will it now make it easier for them to switch over and actually get this going? Well, we'll, we'll find out. This is kind of a new development, but I expect we'll see more devices showing up. Um, the other thing, in general, we are seeing more devices becoming HomeKit compatible even before this change. So I, I expect that this change will just expedite that. You know, CES this year saw 
a ton of Amazon Echo enabled devices. I mean, this was probably the if there was a theme to CES this year, it was probably Amazon Echo compatibility, um, which I think is a good thing in general for home automation because it shows that there is an interest in this category. But we also saw several HomeKit compatible devices that were introduced at CES this year, although honestly, several of them have not yet shipped. Um, there is the uh, the D-Link new security camera that is shipping. Uh, there's a quick set lock that is HomeKit compatible. That is shipping. Uh, the Chamberlain MyQ garage door opener has promised but has not yet shipped yet. Um, and, and others are, are coming as well. So um, we'll, we'll see what gets delivered in the future. In the meantime, Katie Floyd, um, you have, you've moved. Yes, it's been a it's been a busy couple of a uh, couple of months for me. So getting the new digs gave you an opportunity to take a look at your home automation. In fact, that's what really got us started on this show. You're like, hey, I've redone everything. I'm like, well, let's hear about it. Yeah. So so there there are a couple of things that that I want to talk about. So the the first was my my life without home automation as I was selling my old house, and then the second is kind of what I've done in this new house. So, you know, when when you go to sell a house, you've got to do all this stuff to get the house ready to sell. And I had like a weekend. The, the, the Buying this new house happened very, very quickly. And it's a long story that I won't get into here. It, it was all good things. Um, but the short version is I, I found this house. I decided I wanted to put an offer in on it. And I had to, I had a weekend to to get my house ready for sale and get it on the market. And so I talked to my realtor and they said, well, you know, Anything that you're not going to leave with your house, you really need to take out because you can't sell your house with with all of these things or you can't show your house with all of these things in here and then ultimately, you know, not, you know, give them to the to the buyer. So that meant over the course of the weekend, in addition to just having to clean and scrub from top to bottom like you have to when you're getting your house ready to be on the market, um, I had to, you know, pull out the pliers and the screwdriver and all of that stuff. And, and pull out all of my, my smart home stuff that wasn't easily, you know, removable. So, you know, the, the, the nest came out, the, um, the uh, doorbell came out, the, um, you know, a lot of the, the hue lights ended up coming out um, and just got replaced by, by standard bulbs because we didn't want to show the home with LED lights if we weren't leaving the LED lights in there. Um, and, and so, Pretty much over the course of a weekend, my house that I had, you know, put all these smart home upgrades into uh, became a dumb house. Okay. So how was that? <laughs> it was pretty miserable. Um, I, I ended up living there for about 30, 30 to 40 days um, from the point in time that we put it on the market until I actually, we sold it very quickly and it, and it moved. Um, but um, I, I just realized how much I had come to depend on this home automation technology, just even little things like, you know, having lights on when I came home or, you know, being able to know who was at the door or having the thermostat automatically adjust based on when I was home and when I wasn't. I mean, I know it sounds like, you know, such first world problems, but, you know, that, that's all really nice, convenient stuff and not having it was a pain. Yeah, I, I think there's an inverse relationship in the utility of home automation based on the number of people in your home. Like if you're one person, you can really leverage it a lot. If the more people you add, the more difficult it gets to do that. But that's something we'll talk about as we get deeper in the outline. Yeah. So I want to switch to the to the happy part of this story. So you did get a new house. 
I got a I got a new to me house. Um, you guys may remember. In fact, we were recording this podcast. One of the the benefits of my old house is I pretty much built that house from scratch. You know, all the way I, I did build it from scratch, it, it, from a dirt lot to my finished house. I I had a hand in everything of that. So I got to decide where every wire went, every where every networking cable went, yeah, all the cable drops. Yeah, all all of those types of things. And uh, the the house that I moved into, although it was ultimately a nicer house. Um, it's a little bit bigger and a little, little bit better built. Um, it was built in 2005, and it did. It wasn't built for somebody. It was. It was actually built for an older gentleman who was a retiree, um, and he didn't have a lot of technology built in. I mean, he basically he he had, um, you know, um, he, he did have just because that's what they were wiring at the time. Um, it was it was Cat Six cable that they used to wire up the the phone lines, but they had standard phone jacks on the end of it. Um, so I was able to utilize some of that. But you know, otherwise there there was not one Ethernet drop in the home. There was there was no custom cabling. You know, nothing like that. It was it was just your pretty standard run of the mill, you know, home with with no technology. Okay, so so how did you go about uh, remedying that? Um, well, well, I, I hired some people. Um, before move in, um, from the point in time that I closed until the point in time I moved in, I had three days or three, three working days. I had three days in a weekend. Um, and I scheduled, um, networking guy, uh, an electrician and painters, but that was unrelated, um, to basically come in and from top to bottom, you know, we looked at what needed to go and where it needed to go. Um, I brought an electrician. And they just basically did all the high voltage stuff. Um, and then a networking guy came in and did all the, the low voltage stuff. Um, and then the painters painted, which was difficult because we had such a compressed time schedule that they were all working around each other. And, it, you know, it's hard to have a painter painting a room when you've got an electrician and a networking guy, you know, cutting holes in the wall. And Yeah, I was thinking that wouldn't that be kind of like like the sanding and everything you need to do to put the drywall back together kind of a problem for the painters. It it wasn't ideal circumstances, but you know, we had a compressed time frame and and we made it work. Um to me to me the important thing is was um trying to get it all done, you know, before the movers came. Because it's it's certainly easier to do all of this stuff and have all the cabling run, you know, before all the furniture and everything goes in. But, you know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world if it hadn't been done. So that's something, though, that, that listeners may be interested in. I mean, just because you've got an older house doesn't mean you can't run your cabling all over the house. And and honestly, cabling is always better than wireless. It doesn't matter how fancy your wireless equipment is. Um, and my uh, my networking guy, um, he's a he's an individual guy. He has his own business. Um, I've, I've known him before. I've used him before. Um, he he came out and I had a general idea of what I wanted done, but he also had some good suggestions and I incorporated several of his suggestions. But basically what we knew we wanted to do is, you know, I knew where my rooms were all going to be. I knew where my, I wanted my TVs. I knew where my office was going to be set up. So I, I knew about where I wanted my, my ethernet drops. And we made a few adjustments, you know, once he got up in the attic and, and saw what the situation was. But what I had him do is 
Um, I have a, it used to be a coat closet. Now it's a networking closet. Um, I have a coat closet that's right outside my, my home office that we um, decided that was going to be our, our networking closet because it was about the right size. I could put some shelving in there and, and put some ventilation in there. And that's where it was going to be. Um, that's where everything was going to terminate. That's where I was going to, you know, put my Mac mini. That's where I was going to put my Synology. That's where I was going to put my, my power supply. You know, that's, that's where I was going to put my networking box. That's where everything was going to be. And so we started working from there and then, then going out. So I had my electrician, you know, run, run power to that cabinet. And then my networking guy just started going out and running drops, you know, from different parts of the house to that cabinet. And I think we ran about a dozen in total. That's a lot. So sort of the key drops, I would, I would guess that's probably wherever your Apple TV is, wherever your desk is. Yeah. What we did is um, I, I ran and, and the thing was, is that running it, it was not significantly more expensive to run two drops as opposed to running one because it was at that point, you know, he could run the yeah, once the guy's there. Yeah, he could yeah. he could run the wire. To, well, I meant to a specific location. Like if you're going to run one cable to the to the living room, it's not much more expensive to run three or four because you can run all the cable together. It's just you know the finishing them off, and I had them finish them all off, you know, so they were you know plates in the walls and and looked good. Um, obviously each one cost a little bit more cause he had to finish them and, and play them and do all of that. But so I think we put, um, we put four in the living room, you know, for, because everything in the living room is connected to, to, um, to ethernet, like, you know, Apple TV and TiVo. And we wanted to have a, to be able to plug an Eero in there and, um, to, you know, basically have some, some free space for future expansion, um, we also looked at, like in my master bedroom, we put a couple of drops up high because we knew that, you know, stuff from the TV was going to be plugged in up high. So we also looked at where TVs were going to go. And so I had my electricians also install or relocate some wiring for TVs. So we basically put drops um, in every bedroom. We put a drop where we thought TVs were going to go. We put multiple drops in the living room and then multiple drops uh, in my office. And in my big spaces, we tried to put like in my, I have a big, like a grand room. I tried to put a couple of drops on one wall and a couple of drops on the other wall. So I think in total, we ran about a dozen. So if somebody listening is thinking that it's time to, to wire their house, what's a ballpark cost for that? Well, we did a couple of things because he also then, you know, ran cabling for TVs and mounted TVs and things like that. So my total bill was a little bit larger, but I would say the total bill, the the portion that was dedicated to um, running all the cabling and dropping all the cabling, that took about a day and it was about 1500 bucks. So it, it wasn't nearly as bad as I, I thought it would be or thought that it could be. And, you know, although it's a, it's a big expense, it's probably not as much as a lot of people spend, you know, on their iPads this week. Um, and it's done. Forever, really. And it's, yeah, it's forever done, right. Okay. Well, so you got the, you got the house wired up and, um, and then you got to reinstall your, um, your system. Like, what did you do for your network for the new place? And what kind of home automation stuff made the cut and got reinstalled? Um, well, so it's a, it's a wired backbone. And then I um, I reinstalled my my three euros and three euros were a little bit of overkill for my wait, wait wait Katie I'm sorry a lot of people don't know what you mean when you say wired backbone I mean what does that well, mean well the wired backbone is just all the cabling that we ran you know that's that's what goes from so so now I have cabling which is basically the backbone of my network that goes all the way around the house 
Yeah. So for a lot of people, they'll have uh, the the cable drop in some portion of their house, and from there, everything goes wireless out out to all the various devices. So when you say backbone, what you mean is I've got uh, copper wire in various places of the house, and all the routers are, are attached to copper wire, which gives them a much faster internet base to start with. Right, and that was one of the reasons why I dro- I've, I put a few extra drops is because, you know, we. Uh, we like the Eros, and full disclosure, they're a, they're an occasional sponsor of the show, and I think they just came out with a new product as we're recording this. But um, you know, so I knew that I wanted um, to have all those Eros spread out around my house, connected. They could be connected wirelessly, and they work great when they're connected wirelessly. Um, but I I knew that if possible, I wanted to have them connected via hardwire. So um, that's what I did, and I had I had the three pack which was a little bit overkill for my previous house because it was quite a bit smaller. Um, but man, man, am I glad I have the three pack now because this house is a little bit bigger and it's a split floor plan. I've got um, a, a bonus room upstairs and then several bedrooms downstairs. So um, I've got two downstairs, um, one kind of centrally located and one back by the bedrooms. And then I've got one upstairs, which is which is where my home office is. And that one is actually in the networking closet that's connected um, to the hub. So that's the that's the main gateway. Uh, and everything connects through there. So I've got I've got solid Wi-Fi pretty much, well, definitely everywhere throughout the house, um, and then you know throughout the you know the front entryway. So when I pull in, it's you know it's in my garage, it's in my driveway, and it's it's in the backyard. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Gazelle. Gazelle is the online marketplace for buying and selling used gadgets. You can shop from a variety of certified pre-owned electronics. Or trade in one for cash. Give new life to a used device by visiting gazelle.com today. So Gazelle is your trusted online marketing place for buying and selling used electronics. You can trade in your old device for cash or buy a certified pre-owned one. Or you know what? You can do both. For trade-ins, simply visit gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com, find your device and get an instant quote. Shipping is free and payment is fast. Now, if you're looking for a certified pre-owned device, Gazelle has a variety of iPhones, iPads, Samsung devices to choose from, and each device is fully inspected and backed by a 30-day return policy and sold without any carrier contract. This is a great thing to do if you're looking to replace a device that may have gotten accidentally broken, um, or you just want to get a new phone and without extending your contract. You can go to gazelle.com to see what your old device is worth, and while you're there, check out their selection of certified pre-owned devices. Gazelle makes the process of buying or selling a used device painless. So if you're looking at trading in your device with Gazelle, you can get a free offer now. Simply head over to the website, find your gadget, answer a few easy questions about the condition, and you will get an instant price quote. Best of all, no hassle, no fuss, no negotiation, none of the weird stuff that comes with eBay or Craigslist or any of those other providers. You just get a quote, you get a box in the mail, you send your device in, and payments are fast. You can either get a check in the mail, an Amazon gift card in your inbox, or direct deposit to your PayPal account. So give new life to those used electronics, trade in for cash, maybe use that money to put new, towards a fancy new gadget, or buy something pre-owned. You can do it all at gazelle.com today. And while you're there, please make sure you click on the button that lets them know you came from Mac Power users. Thanks, Gazelle, for your support of the show. Okay, Katie Floyd, you got a wireless, I'm sorry, you got a wired backbone. Yes. It's good to know. Yeah. Probably good for your posture too. It is, right. And 
And the, uh, but what are the toys? I mean, how are you making this stuff dance for you? Okay. Um, well, the, the big change that I've made since the last time we talked about home automation is I upgraded and I picked up a Synology. So I want to talk a lot more about that later because that I think is a whole section on its own. But the Synology do, is doing a lot of stuff for me. It's, it's kind of like a mini computer, really. Um, on the network and it's kind of running, you know, some of my security system and it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's a file server and download machine and it's running, you know, my Plex server and doing a bunch of that type of stuff. So, uh, I definitely want to get into that, but, but that is definitely wired up and in that networking closet and, and just humming along. Um, the other thing is you have gotten me into the hue bulbs. It took me a little while to get into hue bulbs. Um, but what I found is that, um, hue started to make the white bulbs. They they came out initially with the color bulbs and they were quite expensive, but they also make a, a white starter kit. And if you don't really care about changing the color of your bulbs, the white starter kit is a, a lot more reasonably priced. And for most people, you know, a white bulb is really all you need. So I've got a hue starter kit and I've probably got about half a dozen bulbs at this point. And I've got a, a, several of them outside and that seems to work fine because the, the internet signal is, is good. And I've got a couple of them inside in, in various lamps. The other thing that I have is um, I have two nests. I actually, I had one that I pulled out of my previous house. That's a second generation nest. Um, and then I had to add a second one because this house has a upstairs, downstairs. And my other house was previously only one floor plan. Um, this house actually has a, a dual zone system. So I've got one thermostat that controls the upstairs, one thermostat that controls the downstairs. And that's been really nice to have because um, there are a lot of times when I don't come upstairs. And so I can keep that at a higher temperature and keep that system off. But when I come home, it, it automatically cools the downstairs. So for example, I've got the, the hue no, I'm sorry, the nest knows when we record the podcast, because it will, it will start cooling down the, the podcast studio before our show since we have a pretty regular schedule. I'm curious about that because the Nest was purchased by Google. Uh, I, I suspect they will probably never have HomeKit integration, or maybe they will now that they can do it with software. I don't know. But the, um, uh, were you tempted to go with a HomeKit-enabled thermostat as you moved into the new place? I was really tempted, and that was – I almost went with one of the Ecobee, Ecobee or Ecobee solutions – the what it ultimately came down to is i knew that i needed two and i already had one of the nests if if i only needed one it probably would have been a lot easier for me to go ahead and just switch something over to a different system because that was the big drawback for me about the nest i mean i love the nest but fundamentally, the Nest hasn't changed since the first generation. I mean, it's gotten a little slimmer. It's gotten a little sleeker. But all of those updates have come really to software. I, I think, you know, the Nest does what it does, and it does what it does well. In fact, I think it's still the wire cutter's pick for the, the best thermostat. But they're, they're kind of getting their lunch eaten by some of these other systems that are coming on. And I don't. I think you're right. I don't know that they'll ever have smart home technology, but... It was one that I definitely looked twice at. And I think if I were buying new and I wasn't just adding to an existing system, I, I would have seriously looked at one of the other th smart thermostats. Yeah, I've got similar thoughts I'll talk about later when I talk about what I'm doing these days. Um, when we talked last, you had a, a very fancy system for your garage door. 
Did you bring that over? I did. I did bring that over. In fact, I had to add to it because I now have two garage doors. I now have a double garage. So I have the Chamberlain MyQ garage door system that I've been very, very happy with. But um, it does not yet have HomeKit compatibility. They announced it at WWDC, and then they announced, like so many of these other manufacturers, that they're going to have a you know one of these breakout boxes that will add HomeKit support to the the MyQ. Supposed to come out in April. Of course, here we are sitting in July, and it's not out yet. Um, but hopefully, it will come out soon. The um, one thing about it, though, is you can add a second sensor fairly inexpensively. So I think I was able to buy a second sensor for less than thirty bucks. And then move that and buy uh, over to my second garage door, and and so now I've got got that installed. In fact, I I actually had one day a couple of couple of weeks ago before right shortly after I moved in, um, where I just I hadn't gotten around to installing it yet, and I came home from work one day and my garage door was open, and I was just so frustrated because clearly it had either caught on something or it had bounced back up. And I, I live in a pretty safe neighborhood. And I live in the very back of the neighborhood. So everything was fine. Nothing had happened. But I just really, you know, the next day I, I installed the the MyQ because I've got it set up to alert me if the door opens during, you know, hours where it should be closed or if the door opens and stays open for more than 15 minutes, it will it will alert me. And, you know, those are things that are completely avoidable. So what's the time investment installing the MyQ? Uh, it's pretty minimal. Uh, it was it's probably twenty minutes or less. It's um it's a little box that you install kind of on the top of your garage. It's just mounting. It's mounting the box and then um, plugging it into power. And then it's a sensor that you either drill into your garage door if you have a wood garage door. Or if you have kind of an aluminum or metal garage door that you tape with, you know, like it gives you like that sticky tape. And then it's a matter of programming. And, you know, you connect it to your Wi-Fi network like you do most of these Internet of Things devices. And you're, it programs it and you're pretty good to go. So I would say 20 minutes or less. And that's not um, HomeKit compatible either, is it? Yeah. Not yet. But su- supposedly any day now it will be coming. In fact, I'm, I've signed up at their website to receive notifications of when the HomeKit compatible piece comes out. But supposedly there's going to be both a new version that is HomeKit compatible as well as a kit to make existing garage door, the, the existing MyQ products HomeKit compatible. Yeah. And that's probably hardware if they're if they're doing it now. I mean, that's before WWDC just announced the software solution. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it's a hardware box. And then um, what else did you You had the, the, the fancy doorbell. Yes, I had the ring doorbell. Um, that was a little bit of a challenge because I, I made a critical error. Uh, if you have the Ring Pro doorbell, there's a little tiny piece. It, it looks like the size of, um, of a, it's a, it's a battery pack, and it looks almost like a small battery that used to fit in a camcorder or, or a digital camera. It looks like a battery that used to fit into like a digital camera, if you remember the size of those batteries. Um, and that battery pack has to be installed on the uh, on the interior of your house inside your doorbell box. And I forgot to take the battery pack with me when I moved out of the house. So you just go knock on the door and say, hey, I have my screwdriver and my ladder. I need to get into the... <laughs> um, well, let's just say that the buyers and I were not perhaps on the best of terms by the end of the closing. So um, <laughs> it, nothing bad. It was just... Um, it was just a very long closing process. So, uh, no, I was not. I was not going back to the house. I debated it. I was not going back to the house and knocking on the door because it just. How do you explain that? Um, you know, I'm I'm taking your doorbell apart. I promise I'll put it back together. 
um <laughs> whoops yeah i mean so you could probably order a new one right i did um i called the ring customer support they were very very nice about it they sent it out for free um unfortunately they sent me the wrong piece and then they sent it again and then the piece that they sent me was missing a piece so we're now on our third attempt uh, but they've been very polite about it every time we're now on our third attempt for them to send me a um uh the piece and it's it's coming and it's on its way and it should be here next week so um the the first time it was my my fault i i improperly explained the piece that i need um the second time it was just a defective piece so hopefully the third time is the charm but um their customer support has been awesome cuz they're sending me a piece that i mistakenly left and they haven't charged me for it so that was pretty awesome. Uh, the other thing that I have is I have a couple of Wemo switches, and I've I've gone back and forth on the Belkin Wemo products. I've had kind of a love hate relationship with them. Um, I used to have a couple of their light switches. They never worked well for me. I had all kinds of problems with them. I finally just uninstalled them all. Um, but I have kept their um, their switches that you know their their outlets, their plug in outlets. Those tend to have worked well, although they've never been HomeKit compatible. And I was just about ready to switch over and buy something else. And then Wemo announced HomeKit compatibility coming to those products. Now, keep in mind, Wemo announced HomeKit compatibility was coming years ago, but apparently they're serious about it now. In fact, they actually sent out a picture in their press release of the, the forthcoming product. So it feels a little more real now. I, you know, when I hear companies are having a hard time getting HomeKit compatibility, I do not blame the companies. I think largely it's Apple. I mean, because they're just, they're taking security seriously as they do throughout everything else they do. And I think that it's just a lot harder to get in compliance with the system than it is just about any other vendor who's, I think, pretty liberal about letting people put just about anything into the system. Now I use I use these for a couple of things. Um one is very simple and very straightforward. Um I just have a fan in my bedroom that I plug into it. And I've I've always slept with white noise. I I have a hard time sleeping without white noise. So I just have a fan and I use the Wemo app and the fan comes on at ten o'clock and the fan turns off at six AM. And that's all, that's all I, it does. I never knew that about you, Katie. I, yeah. Even when it's like cold, you blow the fan. I mean, always, I, I mean, when it's hot, it, cold, it, 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 does... it could be 30 degrees outside and I've got the fan running. Really? Uh-huh. It's, it's not, it's not the breeze. It's, it's the noise. Yeah, I get it. Now, like when you're working, do you do any kind of white noise stuff for that? No, it's only, it's only to sleep. Interesting. I, cause I, I do the, uh, I have that, there's a, there's a goofy app for the iPhone and Mac, by the way, called relax melodies. It's like, I don't know. It's just, I don't, the UI isn't great, but, but they can make the sound of a rainstorm and often can't be a rainstorm. Can't be chirping. Can't be the ocean. Can't be. No. Well, I, I was just saying for me though, okay. I like the rainstorm. Right. It helps me work. If I don't, if I, if I really need to focus, I'll play the rainstorm. It's okay. But you just have to have the fan noise, white noise. Just the white noise, yeah. I ha- I have I have the white noise app on my iPhone, and I found that I like the brown noise better. Um, okay. And and I'll use that like if I have to, if I'm if I'm in the uh, like in a, if I'm at a hotel or something like that. Yes, if you run it, if you're in a my next question, what do you do when you travel? Absolutely, I use the white noise app on the iPhone. What about when you're on a boat this this past uh, trip? Did you took my iPhone? The white noise where where it was really bad was when I was in the Grand Canyon because I could not run it. Oh man! I know. 
And there's there's like all kinds of nature sounds down there. That's not that's not brown noise. I I did not sleep. Yeah, no. But I have it. I have it turn off at six o'clock because it's like an alarm. As soon as soon as that fan turns off, I wake up. You you are a deep chest of information. <laughs> I know. I need to get like an APC or something for it because when we have a hurricane and the power goes off for a couple of days, it's going to be in bad bad shape. Hey, you're just not going to sleep. I know it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> but um. Anyway, so that's that's one of the Wemo switches. That's that's now that we've dived dived deep into my psyche on that. Well, I just I, okay. So that make I was thinking, why would you put a fan on a Wemo if you're you only turn the fan on when you walk in the room? Well, actually, you you want it on a timer, so you're using it basically as a timer. Uh, it's it's a fancy timer. Yeah, that's all it is. Um, the the other two Wemo switches, I, well, three. I have one that's connected to my computer, and we talked about that, I think, a couple of episodes ago. Um, I use that to to turn the power off to my computer in the middle of the night so that it runs on battery power for a while and then plug it back I in. I love that. That was that was that was Katie Floyd Gold right yeah, there. Yeah, I'm going to write that up. I actually use it in connection with the caffeine app. So the caffeine app you can um I'm sorry, that's not right. Amphetamine is the the app that I use it with because you can you can set up a, a timer on amphetamine. So I've set up the timer so that the amphetamine timer goes off at the time that the Wemo goes off so that my computer will stay awake for I think it's two and a half hours. The Wemo will stay off for two and a half hours, then they both flip about an hour and a half before I typically get up in the morning. And then I know that my computer is charged before I get up, but yet it's, it's been on battery for two hours. Yeah. If you missed that episode, the short version was uh, Katie wants her laptop to run off batteries a couple hours a day. It's good battery health, frankly, to run your computer off battery. So she uses the Wemo to turn off the power to the, to the plug in the wall that the, the laptop is plugged into. So it goes on batteries. And then she uses the, um, amphetamine app to make sure the screen wakes up and actually burns some some electrons while it's on battery you know the thing i'm hearing from you katie none of these things are home kit yeah no 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 but they're going to be the so the other thing i do with the wemo um i have i have three d-link cameras in my house one of them is in my garage pointed at my garage doors because that's kind of my backup system for the chamberlain myq because sometimes they give me false positives but they haven't in a long time so i think that that calibration has gotten better. Well, what happened a couple of days ago when you? Well, came that home? was that was before I had it installed. Okay, the cameras. Um, no, that was before. I, that was before I had the Chamberlain installed, and I just didn't even check to think to check the yeah, camera. Yeah, but you have a backup. Your cameras. How come your cameras didn't tell you? Well, because I didn't look at the camera. You have to look at the camera for the camera to tell <laughs> okay. you that the garage door is open. The, the right. camera manual backup. Yeah, the camera is more so if I drive away and think, man, did I close the garage door? I don't remember. No, I, I had no inclination that my garage door was open this particular day. But I, I have, so I have one in the garage and that's just plugged in. It's on all the time because, you know, it's in the garage and it's it's fine. But I have I have two D-Link cameras in my house and they're, one is in kind of the kitchen area and one is in the living room area. So they're in public areas of my house and, and it's just me and I, I know that they're here, but I'm still a little weirded out by the idea of having cameras in my house. So what I've done is I have connected those cameras to Wemos. And and what I can do is I've got the see this is this is where HomeKit on the Wemos would really come in handy. And for now what I've done is I've then connected those Wemo switches to if this then that. So if I return home 
I, I, I've got location triggers set up with if this than that. So when I leave home, those Wemos turn on and the cameras are activated. But when I return home, those Wemos turn off and the cameras are deactivated. So I know that when I'm home, the cameras have no power to them. I, I you know, it's, I, I, it's all, it's easy for us all to be paranoid about this stuff, but like, and just the idea of security cameras, like in the bedroom or kind of the living space of the house, I've never been comfortable with that. But, but putting them in the, you know, like the kitchen area, like as a, as truly as a security device, um, you, you just got to make your own decisions on that. I, I think it'd be nice if we could have a way if these camera makers would make kind of like a dead man switch on it for some way where you can literally cut power to it. Well, that's what I've created. I know you, you've created it, but it'd be nice if it was built into the hardware so you don't have to do this thing. I'm almost done here. So I've got an Amazon Echo, which I think we can talk about, you know, our ladies in a canister later. Um, I've actually got three of them. I've got an Echo, you know, the big cylinder tube in the kitchen. And then I've got two dots throughout the house. I've got one in my bedroom so that I can, you know, lay in bed and, and tell the Echo to turn off the lights or turn on this or, or turn on the fan. You know, if I decide to go to bed early and, and I want to get some sleep, I got to turn on the fan. But I don't want to get out of bed and turn it on because, you know. Um, and then I've got one Echo Dot upstairs in my office so that I can yell out commands to adjust the thermostat and that kind of thing. Do you ever use Siri to, like, turn on your Hue lights or is it all through Amazon Echo? It's all through the Amazon Echo. All of it. I want to talk about that when it's my turn. Yeah. All right. Um, Of course, we talked about the three euros. And then the other thing that I've added um, is I've added a couple of these uh, USB power plugs that are in the wall. In fact, um, the wire cutters top pick was recently on sale. I don't know if it still is, but it's the one that will charge an iPad at full speed. And so what these are is these are power outlets that have two regular um, power outlets. And then they also have two USB outlets. And I keep one in my kitchen and I've got one in my laundry room because I have countertops there. And um, so I can just plug in an iPhone or plug in an iPad or guests can plug in an iPhone or an iPad and just have a, a dedicated space where I can charge devices, you know, kind of when I'm out and around or where somebody else can plug in something. And, and it's just nice to have so you don't have all these wall boards hanging everywhere. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, those have been kind of in development for several years. I remember going back to Macworld where they had prototypes of those devices and everything seemed a little wonky for a while, but I think it's settled down now where if you get a reputable manufacturer, that's a safe product. Uh, if you know what you're doing, make sure you, uh, when you plug that in, you're using the, you're using big power when you, when you uh, attach those. So make sure you turn off the breakers or hire an electrician if you don't know how to do it. Yeah, they're pretty easy to install. You, please tell me you turned off the breaker before you did it. Turning off the breakers for wusses. No, yes, of course I turned off the breaker. Okay. Because, I mean, I don't want to. I mean, you could get curly hair. I guess that'd be okay. It might look good on you, actually. No, but it wouldn't no, look good on always, me. Always turn off the breaker. I turned off the breaker. But anyway, that's me. I'm uh, Other than the Synology, which we'll talk about later, I've, uh, we, we've covered me. But I feel like I've monopolized this conversation. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by Daylight the CRM and project management app for Teams on the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. Daylight helps companies manage more leads and projects by organizing all your data so you can work more efficiently and gain valuable insights into your business. Now, Daylight's been around a long time, but it's still very actively developed. 
Recently, a law firm in Georgia shared that Daylight has helped them grow from a team of two to 13 in just two years. By using keywords in Daylight to tag how new leads and clients heard about them, the firm was able to filter and uncover which methods work best for attracting new clients. This application does so much more than just manage your calendar and contacts. It gets you real data on how you make money. Using Daylight, that same law firm was able to identify which clients were referring the wrong types of leads. By educating their referring clients about their services, they saw a big improvement in the type of leads they were getting, which led to more clients and more business. That's really a point worth emphasizing. Daylight is there to help make your business grow, not just to manage your data. You can see this on their blog, where they just recently published a video on how to generate more leads with Facebook ads. There's also a tutorial explaining how to improve your team's sales productivity using the Daylight tools. They're even getting ready to publish a webinar for real estate professionals showing how to use Daylight to close sales. I love the way the Daylight team goes that extra mile with their customers and really tries to improve the value of your business. Like I said, Daylight's been around a long time, but it's a fully updated application. They have solutions to store your data on the cloud or let you keep it on your own server. And everything is engineered by a group of people that love the Mac and love the iPad and iPhone. So they look beautiful. Don't just take my word for it, though. Head over to MarketCircle.com and check out Daylight. Check out the product features and make sure to check in on their blog to see all of the additional training and events they're putting together so Daylight users can be more productive. Thanks, Daylight, for supporting the Mac Power users. So what about you? Let's talk about your home automation setup and, and how that things may have changed. Yeah, it's progressed since we last talked about it. The, the one thing that I kept thinking about listening to you was just like so many buckets. <laughs> There's so many different like little ecosystems of automation and they don't all work together. And that was the big promise of HomeKit is Apple saying, okay, we're going to make it really easy. We're going to pull all this stuff together. And, you know, using your iOS devices, we're going to make hooks. So it's very easy to get to these switches to turn them off. I mean, anybody who's into this stuff, has like a, somewhere on their iPhone, like a folder or pages of different apps, the Wemo app, the Nest app, all this other stuff. So I am really starting, I have had a period of relative rest because as HomeKit came out, I wanted to see if it was the real deal. And then I wanted to start slowly pushing all of my stuff into HomeKit. I would really like to be able to have one place to, to rule all this stuff, but I'm not there yet. So, so let me talk about what I am doing. Uh, as Katie mentioned earlier, I was an early adopter to the Philips Hue lights. I bought a set of those. It was like 200 bucks. It was really expensive. Um, and they're colored lights and they're super cool. And my family and I still routinely will just like, we'll turn on the lights with the, we have an app that actually changes the color of the lights to the beat of music. It listens to the microphone on the iPhone and changes colors. It's really cool. So we will, we will just like bust a move once in a while, but but like Katie also said, most of the time, white is just fine. And when they came out with those white lights, they had a deal at, I think it was Home Depot, where they were like, they were under $15 each. And I bought, you know, I bought a bunch of them. I think we've probably got about 15 of them in the house. And we've at this point replaced basically every light bulb with the Hue, the Hue white bulbs. Um, including, as Katie mentioned, my uh, my lights on the on the front porch is a Hue bulb and the back porch. So I can control lights all over the house from my phone and my various devices. 
are you getting the different size bulbs? Or are you getting, you know, kind of what I would call the lamp bulbs? Or have you gotten some of like the interior flood bulbs? Yeah, I've got, I've got, you name it, I've got some of them. Like in our, um, in one room of our house, we have those buckets in the ceiling that you put the bigger size bulbs in, I think. The number 30 is in there. It's like something, something 30. Yeah, I think they're like BR30, I think. We'll put a link in the show notes. I've got four of those. Um, I've got a couple of those in the kitchen, too. And I've got the regular light bulbs, you know, the lamp size bulbs. That's what I mainly have is lamp size bulbs. Um, I have, um, I've just put them all over the house. And they just aren't that expensive. And having it in one system makes it work. Now, I know there's some other uh, vendors out there that are even cheaper now with smart light bulbs. And if there's one that you particularly like, let us know for the feedback show. But since I had already gone in with you, and I already had the apps and my family was already kind of used to how it worked. I didn't want to change systems. Uh, that, that being said, I really liked it. I, I think the white bulbs are a good value and they're not just white. You can change, they, they're dimmable. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it's really nice. We have um, purchased also, uh, I got these off Amazon, but you can get them at most places to sell Hue stuff. They have Hue dimmer switches and it's a, it's a little switch that's got uh, an all on, all off, and then a plus and minus in the middle button so you can slowly raise or lower the light level. And you can completely control what lights they cover. So it, it's, it really gives you, imagine being able to stick a switch to the wall anywhere in your house and decide exactly which lights it covers. Like I have one when you walk in the front door and if you tap on it, it opens up lights all over the house. And it's great when you come in late at night and you, you know, I don't like walking around a dark house when I get home. So I, I, I click that one as I walk in the front door, it turns on some lights in the kitchen. It turns on the stairwell light. It turns on the upper hallway light. So suddenly the house is lit enough for me to get around. The one thing it doesn't do is turn on any bedroom lights because somebody may be asleep, you know, which gets back to my problem of having four people in the house. Um, but so those dimmers are really nice. I also have them, like I have one in the, um, in the family room where we watch movies. And another nice thing about the dimmer light is it's a switch that you can either screw or use the fancy tape to stick to the wall. But the actual dimmer module itself is magnetically attached to the, to the plate. So if you want, you can pull that off. So if we're going to watch movies, I will pull the, the actual switch off the plate and just put it on the couch next to the remote. And if someone we need to take a break and, you know, go make popcorn or bathroom break or whatever, we can stop the movie. I can raise the lights from sitting right there. I know you can also do that with the app and, and you know, Siri and all the other things, but it's kind of nice to have a physical switch there. I like that. So I would recommend some of those dimmer switches if you're going to go down the Hue road. Uh, Hue also has some other types of lights that like they have strip lighting um, that you can put under cabinets. And I'm super tempted to put some of those in the kitchen, but I'm just waiting for them to get cheap. You know, someday there's going to be a sale somewhere and I'll say, okay, no, I'll do it. But I haven't done that yet. So uh, in general, I'm very happy with the Hue light bulbs. Uh, we've got the apps installed on all of the family members' phones and everybody understands how it works. The Hue app itself has made a lot of progress since the last time we talked about this. I think I was really critical of their app the last time we covered it. Um, it's got a lot simpler. So everybody in my family has no problem understanding how to turn on off and on lights, which was actually kind of difficult before, <laughs> you know, they got too fancy before. Now they've made it a lot, a lot easier to use. Um, uh, the, the responsiveness of the lights has been very good. 
Um, so, you know, when you push the button, things go off and on. Now, do you still use the Hue bulb or are you using like HomeKit for that? Well, I'm both, both. Um, it just depends who, like, like my, my daughter got good at using the Hue app and I don't want to try and get her, you know, I mean, once they've got something that works for them, I, I leave it, you know, that's, you know, living with non-geeks, you got to be careful. If you push the envelope too far, you get in trouble. Um, but I can do it either through HomeKit or the Hue um, app. The Hue app has more control than HomeKit does, frankly, now. And because I don't, everything for me is a bucket of of ecosystems. It's, if everything else was in HomeKit, then I'd probably be more inclined to try and get better doing it with HomeKit. Uh, controlling Hue lights with uh, with voices in the can, um, I find that that the Amazon Echo is a little some uh, inconsistent with me using my hue lights i don't know maybe it's just me but like if i i've got three of them in the bedroom and if i say you know turn the bedroom lights on uh she will possibly turn them all on or maybe she'll turn two of them on you know it doesn't always work as i expect and uh, i don't know why that is the same thing it's really annoying when you go to sleep, I, so we talked about Katie's uh, brown noise. I, I have glaucoma. So I, every night I have to take all these drops. So I can't open my eyes for like 10 minutes. So it's really nice to lay in bed and, and tell the robot to turn the light bulbs off. But sometimes it'll leave ones on, it'll leave one on. And then what am I supposed to do? My eyes are closed. Am I going to be like banging into stuff, trying to turn the light off? Well, what do you care? Your eyes are closed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can tell my wife, please go turn the light off. And she'll then make fun of my computer nerdiness, why nothing works. Um, but the the last six months or so, I've been using Siri to turn off the lights, uh, the Hue lights. And Siri has been way more consistent for me uh, in terms of turning the lights off. It's been faster and it actually gets them all. So I don't know what's going on with the uh, the Amazon Echo, but the, the Siri... Uh, home kit integration with Hue is more consistent for me. Now, you know, in the Amazon echo that you can set up groups so you can set up. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's the problem. I, I have a group called bedroom lights and I'd say, turn off bedroom lights and there's three bedroom lights. And for some reason, one of them just decides, well, I think I'll leave that one on. Okay. Interesting. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Do you ever have that issue with where it fails to consistently you know, honor everything in the group. I have had the issue where, you know, I can never remember, is it bedroom light or bedroom lamp, but it usually will respond to either one. And I can say the same exact phrase three different times. And sometimes it will be the second or third time before it says it, it takes it. Well, well, overall, and I'll move on because I've been talking about Hue enough, but I think Philips has done a really good job of growing this, this whole system of lights they have. It's HomeKit compatible. They have multiple products. They have expensive colored ones if you want that. They have less expensive white ones if you want that. They've got integrated into Amazon Echo and and Apple HomeKit. So no matter what your you know your platform of choice is, it's going to work. And uh, and I've been really happy with that investment. That may be the most successful home automation thing I have. And 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 Katie's already talked about, but you can plug them into if this then that or some other service. So like when you go home, it turns on. It's great. And they all, they all have sensors now. Um, one other thing I've added is I was looking into like serious outdoor lighting, you know, like like flood lighting. And I tried a couple of products. Um, Smart Home had some. And I, what I was looking for is a plug that could power an outdoor light, which actually use quite a bit of wattage often. 
Um, and I couldn't find any that really would be up to the amount of wattage and they would be inconsistent because they would draw too much. And sometimes those switches just don't work that well. I never found one that really worked. Um, so my alternate uh, plan was I started looking on Amazon and there are some really good outdoor solar lights these days um, where they've got the solar panel that, you know, it's a decent sized solar panel. The lights aren't cheap. They're like 30 bucks or so, but they get out they give off a lot of blue led outdoor lighting. Uh, you know, I got a couple that were metal, a couple that were plastic. I've had them over a year now and they're working great. So uh, the whole outside of my house kind of lights up at night uh, and it's nice. And I, there's no hue system involved. It's just basically the sun goes down, they turn on, and they run for several hours. I hope you'll put links to ones you found you like in the show notes because I see ads for those all the time and I never know. I, I don't have many lights outside. I really only have like one bulb on my patio. I really need more outdoor lights, but I never really know what's good and what's not. Yeah, I will. Um, and they're just, like I said, they, they're not super great. I didn't buy the really expensive ones, but I bought like five of them because it's great. I I've got lighting as you're walking up to the house in the backyard and I can look out the window and see what's going on where, where I live. It's not crooks. I'm worried about so much as wildlife. You know, somebody has been eating my tomatoes. Let's just be honest. That's what's got me really upset lately. <laughs> so don't you have like a bunch of droids back there? I want to see who I have a, I have a stormtrooper watching over my tomatoes and he's doing a lousy job because somebody's eating them. I, I think it's a raccoon, but I'm not sure. Well, it's Finn and we know he's a traitor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so outdoor solar lighting, not really out home automation, but something that is really great in the subject of lighting um, for switches. Uh, I don't have that many Wemos. I, I bought a couple of them way back when that was the very first home automation product I, I bought. I have not been that upset about them not adopting HomeKit because it seems like nobody else is either. And I kind of deploy those as needed. They're good for like the Christmas lights or whenever I have something I want to put on a switch. I, I don't have nearly the fancy system that Katie does for that. But uh, I, I was very impressed with the stuff you're doing with the switches, Katie. Um, uh, for the thermostat, I have the Generation 1 Nest, which is the very first one that came out. It's it's worked consistently. It's one it's one more bucket of Internet of Things in my life. So it's another app I have to go to. Um, I have not been very happy with the automation stuff in the Nest. It's just I think if you have a house full of four people, the Nest is constantly confused as to when it's supposed to work and when it's supposed to not work. They um you know, when they first sold it, they said, oh, it's going to monitor who's home when and it's going to be doing all this smart technology, you know, internet stuff to figure out the ideal time to turn on your, you have to think about your air conditioning. It'll just always work. And I've not found that to be true. In fact, it's just the opposite. Like sometimes randomly it turns on for, you know, to blow cold when I don't want it to. And so I, I've turned off as much of that as I can. And we are, the way we are using it now is super basic. We, when we want to turn on the air conditioning, we do it with the app or we walk over to the nest but the, the reason why this thing has paid for itself is um, is the ability to remotely turn the air on. In Southern California, it gets really hot. So during the summer, if we're out on a family event and we want to come home and we want the house to be you know less than 95 degrees, it's, uh, it's nice to turn the air conditioner on as you're driving home and you get home and the house is nice and cool. So let me tell you what I'm doing to to automate my nest and, and see if maybe that will help you. Now, I realize that I'm just one person, so it doesn't have a lot to learn. But I turned off all the smart learning on my nest because I found that it was just not reliable. And I programmed the nest 
like a regular programmable thermostat. And you can do that in in the Nest application. So by default, I on this day of the week, it comes on at this time, it sets to this temperature, it goes to this temperature at this time. You know, all of those things you can you can program. And it's pretty easy to program, particularly on the iPad, because it's a bigger screen. But you can do it on the iPhone too. So I've programmed the Nest to to my preferred schedule because I have a pretty steady schedule. Now what I've also done though is you can set the Nest up to work with iOS devices, particularly if you have someone who has a less regular schedule. And so I've got the Nest set for like, I think it's called Away Assist Mode. So the Nest knows that especially like during the weekends or if I come home late, it it knows if I haven't come home yet. So it knows not to cool the house after work or it knows during the weekend if I leave and my house is set to be cool all day Saturday and Sunday, it knows to immediately set my house to away if if I leave the area and then as soon as I come back to cool it down again. And so that has really helped. And I will tell you that it's pretty darn accurate. The The distinction is I tend to keep my upstairs warmer than my downstairs because it doesn't take but a few minutes to cool down my upstairs and it, I just don't need to cool it because I'm not up here all that often. But I also have, have found that, you know, that month that I didn't have the Nest installed at my old house my utility bill was noticeably higher. Yeah, I, I at some point I'm going to when HomeKit really finds its groove, which I feel like maybe in the next year, I'm going to put a little more money into this stuff. I think I'll probably get a HomeKit friendly thermostat. And some of them, like one of the problems with our house, it's a two story house, but we only have one control unit. And uh, the the temperature upstairs can get very hot. And sometimes we want it on, and but the thermostat is downstairs and it's cool. So I think I could go further with this stuff and some of the new ones, like they have two sensors. So you could have like a sensor upstairs and a sensor downstairs, even though you only have one actual unit. And I think there's room for me to improve there, but the the nest is working good enough for now, but, but I feel like I could be getting more out of automation on that. Um, uh, in terms of cameras, we got, um, a few years ago, we bought two of those Canary cameras and I, we did talk about this in the last time we covered this in the show. So I won't add a whole lot, except that they still work like a charm and I still really like them. The Canary is a unit. It looks like a little tube. It's like another kind of like Amazon echo size tube, maybe a little shorter. And it's got a temperature sensor and it's got a camera and a microphone and a really loud, shrilly alarm that you can trigger remotely. And uh, even though we have four people in our house, it actually does a pretty good job of knowing who's there when. And it gives you notifications whenever there's someone in the house when they're not supposed to be and sends you video of it. And we really, I really like it. I mean, we, we've never really had a problem with our house, but it's, it's just a good security measure. They weren't super expensive. It was like, if you were to hire a security company, it was the cost of like one or two months of having a security company, you know, put a system in your house. And and they give us a lot of uh, peace of mind. We, we were on vacation last year and my daughter's friends often come over and, you know, feed the goldfish, take care of my tomatoes. And we, we kind of tell them, that's fine, go in the house, watch a movie, have fun, whatever. But we got we got the notification, there was motion in our house. And um. And we checked the cameras and sure enough, they were in there watching a movie at our house. So it was, it was nice to know that it worked. That's pretty cool. So do you subscribe to the Canary plan? Cause I know there are a couple of plans for that. Yeah. They have one where it can hold the video much longer, but 
I haven't done that. I just, whenever I get a notification, I just take a look at it. And I guess if there was an issue, I could save, I think it's like seven days. I don't know the exact details because it's always changing, but I think for seven days, that's enough that you get just by owning the device. It's it's even nice, like, you know, sometimes I get a notification and because it's supposed to recognize each of us, but like my daughter will get home and I'll be away and I'll say, oh, there she is. She made it home. Okay. It's it's really nice, and and but we don't have it on any fancy system where it, it cuts power to them, uh, you know. But they're they're in locations in the house that are non-private areas, and um, it's good enough, and it, it covers the whole downstairs in essence with two cameras. It's a super wide fisheye lens, so you get to see a lot through that lens, and and they're un- unobtrusive. I've never needed to do it, but if there was somebody in there that shouldn't be there. Uh, you push one button and it makes this shrill alarm. And I'm pretty sure if there was a crook in there and that went off, they probably wouldn't stay around very long. So it's, it's a nice device. Uh, I'm very happy with it. Also not HomeKit compatible. <laughs> but they say it's coming. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if it'll work or not, if they can do that through software. But but for I'm happy enough. that That's one that I would be very reluctant to upgrade with some new system because the one we have works so well. And once again, I live with four uh, three people that aren't necessarily that geeky. And they understand the canary. They understand how the app works and they're comfortable with it. So, you know, there's a certain amount of bandwidth I've got to spend if I'm going to switch them to something else that needs to really be worth it. And then in terms of brains for all this, uh, like Katie, I've got the Amazon Echo. I actually have two. I don't have three, but we have one in the kitchen and one in the in the bedroom. Now, are these full-blown Echoes or do you have like dots? Yeah, I, I, the full, I bought the first one full-blown. The second one, they had a deal one day and I got it and... And those are great. I don't really use it as much as you think. I think a lot of people do. I mean, I use it for timers. Um, I use Siri more often. Uh, to be honest with you, I've just got used to talking to Siri, and I feel like it's a little more responsive. Uh, but it, it's nice to have them around. And um, and I drive some automation, largely the Amazon, I'm sorry, the Philips Hue lights with them when they work. None of my other home automation stuff talks to it. Although I've set up some triggers through if this then that that I can trigger through the Amazon Echo. Well, your Wemos, your Wemo and your Nest will talk to it. Yeah, I know, but I, I set it up and I've never used it. Uh, I would I would say though that if you're doing this home automation stuff and you have anything in HomeKit and you just have not used Siri to drive this stuff as a matter of principle, I would take a minute to learn how to do it and give it a try because I found it generally more consistent for me than Amazon Echo. Your, you know, your mileage may vary. I think it's funny. You are so squarely in the Siri camp, and I want to love Siri, but I am so squarely in the Alexa camp. No, I get it. I get it. And you, you just set off a bunch of them. Oh, when you said that. sorry. I've been really good. I've been saying Amazon Echo. I have a, a little on my outline in all caps, Amazon Echo. No, I get it. I the, the, the thing that turned me off was the light bulbs. If it, if it won't turn all the lights off in the room, I got medicine in my eyes. What am I going to do? So if Siri stops doing it, I'll get mad at Siri too. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by FreshBooks, online invoicing made easy. So to all the freelancers out there listening right now, if you could reclaim up to 192 hours of your precious time this year, would you? Our friends over at FreshBooks have made cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculous easy to use, and they're the architects behind that question. By simply taking tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. 
The new notification center that they've built into FreshBooks is like your personal assistant. You'll always know what's changed in your business since you last logged in and know exactly what needs to be dealt with pronto. FreshBooks automates late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working your magic. And while FreshBooks may now have over 10 million users, they've managed to stay a pretty small company, landing them the title of small giant on Forbes list of best companies this year. So if you're listening to this and you're not using FreshBooks yet, it is time to give it a try. FreshBooks are offering our users an unrestricted 30-day free trial with no credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash MPU and enter Mac Power Users. That's all capital letters, three words, in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of this show and for supporting all of the great freelancers out there. So I want to talk about a fairly new addition to my household, and it's um, something that we've had a lot of people ask us to talk about for a while, and that is my Synology disk station. Um, I am really excited about this. I switched from a Drobo to a Synology last year and have been using it for a while now. Um, I initially had the Synology, I don't even remember, 416, I want to say. Um, and then the folks at Synology were kind enough to upgrade me to the DS916 in full disclosure. Um, so I'm now rocking the DS916 Plus, I believe. Uh, that is a, they just, um, a quad core uh, Synology. It's um, scalable with up to nine drives. That's what the nine means. I think the nine means the total number of drives that it can handle. Um, and then the one six is, is the year. So mine was made in 2016. And um, it comes in two options. It comes in a two gigabyte or an eight gigabyte RAM option. I believe mine is the, the eight gigabyte RAM option. And then the plus model, what that means is it can do um, online uh, on-device transcoding, which is particularly important if you're doing, um, you know, Plex playback and you're transcoding things to send off to iPads or to other devices. So um, that was particularly important. And I have just been um, amazed with the device. Even the 416 was a pretty good device. But it didn't do the transcoding on device. It was a little bit slower with doing some Plex stuff. Uh, but the 916 with the additional RAM and the transcoding online has just blown everything else away. So um, I've just been been thrilled with the Synology. Um, like the Drobo, you don't have to put the same size drives in it. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm in the process of upgrading my drives as I can. I've got four of these. I'm sorry, I've got two four terabyte Seagate Ironwolf drives, which are drives that are optimized for NAS. And then the remaining drives, I've got two three terabyte Western Digital red drives. And so as I'm, you know, picking up drives or finding sales or whatever, I'm I'm trying to upgrade those to a little bit bigger drives, but I've got plenty of space for now. And then if you use the Synology hybrid RAID, um, it's a lot like what the Drobos will do. It will it will optimize the drives and the storage space so that you can either set it up, I believe, for one or two drive redundancy. I've got single drive redundancy now so that a single drive can die or you can hot swap a single drive out and put another drive in without any data loss. So that's been very cool. You know, the, uh, for some reason, I've just never really got into network detached storage in the home. Um, tell me a little bit more what you're doing with it. Well, so a lot of people ask me about, you know, why why switch? And the answer is the Synology, I think, especially the higher end ones, are a lot more like a mini computer. 
Um, they have more software and more options. So um, let, let me tell you a little bit about how I'm using it. And, and that might kind of explain. Of course, I'm using it as a bucket of storage. And you can really do that with any NAS or any big bucket of, of direct attached RAID storage. So that that is one way that I've always been using it and one way that you can use any of these drives. That's nothing special or proprietary to Synology. The other way that I'm using it um, is I'm using it as a big Plex server. Now, I ran Plex on network-attached storage drives before. Uh, the Synology does it a lot faster. The Synology can do it with transcoding. You know, in fact, when I was on my trip in Amsterdam, I was, you know, taking files off my Synology because I didn't have a whole lot of space on my iPad, syncing them up, transcoding them, syncing them up to my iPad, watching them, and then overnight doing a whole nother batch. So, I mean, that that was all stuff that was happening on the fly. Or if you had a good enough internet connection, you could just stream them directly from the Synology. So um, it's a it's a really great Plex server, and it's an always-on Plex server. So you've got this big bucket of storage that is all that's already got your media on it that's just serving it up to whatever devices you happen to have, whether they're on your network or not. So that's been a great, great use of the Synology. How, how does it fit in with your home automation stuff? Well, the other way that it's, and, and I'll get to that, one of the ways that I'm using it for my personal home automation is they have a product called Surveillance System. Um, and what Surveillance System does is it allows you to connect security cameras to it. And so I've never been a big fan of wanting to store my video on someone else's servers or on the cloud. Um, one is because I just don't like a video of my home leaving my home and going out to the internet or going out to somebody else's cloud servers. And another that's a fair statement. Yeah. Yes. And, and another is, you know, I might want to keep it. So like, you know, you were mentioning that you're Canary and I thought that they had changed their plans, David, but you might be grandfathered in because you're older. I think that if you're on their newer system that you only get to keep the video for like 12 or 24 hours. I, I think it's a much shorter window now. But you had mentioned that, you know, you only get to keep that video for a narrow window unless you subscribe to their membership plan. Well, with with my I can use I mean, they've got dozens, if not hundreds of cameras that they support. And so I go out and I bring my own IP camera. I connect it up to my network. The surveillance station on Synology will interface with those cameras and then it will record and keep the video for as long as I tell it to. It can either be based on when it reached a time limit or a storage limit. So I can go back and review all of the video that is stored on the station, you know, from any particular camera for any particular time period. So I think it's got great, I mean, it's it's one, it's nice for for home automation. I mean, if something happens, I can go back and review the footage of what happened in my camera on my camera. But I think it's got great implications if you're a home business user. Or, or a small business user, yeah. Uh, certainly a lot less expensive than some of these professional, you know, closed-circuit TV system type things. Um, I'm, I'm also using it as a personal cloud. They've got um, download station and file sharing. They've got their own file sharing, so you can, um, you know, store files off it. It's, it's like your own private cloud server. So those are other things that, that you can do with it. Um, and then there's just a ton of other options for Synology. So um, th that's that's how I'm using it now. Those are all things that I've already got set up and, and ready to go and that I'm actively using. Um, and then there are a couple of things that I'm dabbling with that, that I haven't gotten fully baked yet. Um, one of them is the Synology because it's here on your network. It has a VPN server. So you can set it up to be your own VPN. And when you're VPNing, you're actually coming back into your own network um, and so you're, if you're out, you can set up the Synology to be your own VPN server. So 
when you're browsing, you're back on your own home network. And so it's basically a free VPN server. If you've got faster, reasonably fast Wi-Fi at home, uh, you should be pretty good to go. And I do. So I'm I'm working on getting that set up. And Synology has sent me some instructions, which I'll, I'll probably link in the show notes for people. Uh, Synology also, there's a, there's a project called um, Homebridge, which allows you, uh, and it's a hack, but it's a software project that allows you to put devices that are not HomeKit compatible and make them HomeKit compatible. And there's a, there's an, so Synology has this app interface and this app infrastructure. So there are hundreds of apps available for Synology. And there is a, um, there's an app called Docker, which allows you to run, you know, think of them like virtual boxes or virtual images. And someone has created one for Homebridge. So there's a Homebridge instance that I'm, I'm working on getting set up on my Synology where I can run Homebridge on my Synology. So now my Nest and my Wemo devices, even though they're not supported yet, can can become compatible with, with HomeKit or Home, yeah, HomeKit. How cool is that? Yeah, I am really curious to hear how that works because I, I looked into it once and it looked to me like very dodgy as to whether it would, I understand how to set it up. It's actually kind of complicated, but uh, will it actually work over time? Uh, it, it seems to be. And the beauty of it running inside the Docker interface is that you just download it and plug and play and, you know, it's it's kind of siloed and you don't have to worry about it. So that's that's not one that I've I've gotten up and running. I've looked at it. I've read the documentation. I've got it saved in OmniFocus to play with a little bit later, but it's it's pretty good to go. So having the Synology here on the network just gives me access to do a lot of things that I, I wouldn't have otherwise been able to, you know, it's it's more than just a simple bucket of storage. It allows me to do a lot more. Like one of the other things that I do, David, is um, it will auto- automatically download files. So I can queue up files to download on the Synology. So it can be just a URL that I manually enter on an iOS app and it will queue it up to download, or it can be from like an RSS feed. So one of the things that I've done is I've plugged in the RSS feed for our podcast and the RSS feed for Apple's high def keynote feed. And I am in the, I, so for, I save all of our podcasts that we download. So I've got a folder on our Synology that keeps an archive copy of all of our podcasts. And I also keep a high def archive copy of all of Apple's keynotes. So as long as app, as soon as Apple's keynotes hits the podcast feed, it, my Synology sees it and automatically downloads it. And I keep it in my Plex folder so I can rewatch Apple's, I know it's a little Stephen Hackety, um, but I can rewatch all of Apple's old keynotes on my Synology as opposed to having to watch it through the Apple TV or re-download it through the app or do any of those other things. I'm now just serving it myself. It's really not that difficult though, to do that with, with one of these systems once you get it rolling. And the nice thing about it is once you set it up, it just happens. Right. Or if you have a favorite podcast like you, that you always want to download and make sure that you have archives of, you know, or if you have, like a, the Mac Power uh, users. Yeah. or if you have a particularly large file that you want to start downloading when you get home, like, you know, maybe the beta build of a new operating system or something like that, you can queue it up because Synology has apps that, that work on iOS, you know, so you can queue it up and have your Synology download it. And then you've got it when you get home. Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear how, how that evolves as you go on with that. The, the, I'm not super tempted. I mean, I have an iMac that's always running in the background. So a lot of the stuff people do on network attached storage, I have a computer to do for me, but uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah. And and that's the thing is I didn't, you know, I have a laptop, 
So my laptop is either with me or it's asleep or it's not, you know, it's not awake and always doing something. What about the Mac Mini, though? So the Mac Mini is a 2009 Mac Mini. And it is on very borrowed time and it's not doing much anymore. So the Synology has replaced a lot of the stuff that I was doing with the Mac Mini. In fact, when the Mac Mini dies, it likely will not be replaced because pretty much everything I was doing on the Mac Mini, the Synology is doing. So, all right. So that's the Synology. Um, we are starting to run a bit long, but I figured maybe we could, you know, kind of kind of bring it all together here. Can we? Because it just seems like nobody can bring this stuff all together. <laughs> that's the problem. You know, I, I think one of the ways that we're trying to cobble this all together is there are a lot of systems and services out there that will help you bring some of this together. You know, the, the way for me that this has all come together is through the Amazon Echo and to some extent through Siri. But the Amazon Echo is what's brought a lot of this together with me. And then I have patched a lot of this together with If This Then That. Yeah, it, it, that is good glue. And we're going to talk about Zapier as well, too. And both of those services are just made for home automation stuff, as long as you don't mind using the Internet as a, as the uh, backbone for it. Yeah, and then I think HomeKit is getting better, and I think it will continue to get better. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens in the next year as Apple loosens things up. I think we're going to see a lot more vendors coming in the space, and maybe uh, the software will even get a little better. Um, like like one of the things they talked about is that now you can put speakers on HomeKit and anything you attach to your Apple TV is a HomeKit speaker. That'll be nice. Is there anything that you really wish you could do right now with home automation that you can't? I, I wish I could do everything a little more consistently and a little easier. I mean, I'm trying to, not only am I trying to geek out myself, I'm trying to bring my family in and sometimes they have troubles with this stuff. And I think it's because Everything is so cobbled together. So more than, you know, automating new things, I would like to get a little more consistent and a little more common user interface for all things. Yeah, I would I agree with that. I, I think this a lot of it needs to come together. A lot of it is still really in the realm of geeks. I think you said it, consistency. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on consistency. And I think a lot more could be done in recognizing you know, when things should happen automatically, when somebody is home, when somebody comes home and, and making these things, you know, a little more automatic. Yeah, it, it really, some of these services really try when you have multiple family members, they look at like, if you register your phones, it looks at your phones as a way to determine who's home and who's not. But I can tell you, I feel like the curve when you add more people is exponential. You know, it, it just gets multi, multiple times harder the more people you add to the soup. All right. Sounds good. Well, I look forward to seeing where home automation goes in the next year. I think we'll see some advancements in iOS 11. I think HomeKit will get better. And, you know, we've got Apple's HomePod coming out later this year and a new Amazon Echo that is coming out later this summer. Um, so lots of changes in this space. We'll see. And And Katie, just to finalize, iOS 11 looks pretty good on my 10.5 inch iPad. Have you been installing it while we've been sitting here talking? It's it just installed. Yeah, just installed. that's why you've been quiet. Good. Okay, I see it. No, I was letting you talk. You had stuff to say. Yeah, and, and you were busy installing the iPad beta. I gotcha. All right, well, I will let you get out of here so you can go play with the beta on your 10.5 inch iPad. But I do want to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Smile, Gazelle, Market Circle, 
fresh books. And of course, to all of you who are subscribers to Relay, I think we do have a bonus episode coming up later this summer uh, for Relay FM subscribers. So still time uh, to get in on that if you want to. And uh, we will see you all next time. Bye.